Welcome to the Home Service Business Coach Podcast with your host, David Mowerman. You will learn to grow your home service business and transition from being the technician in your business to being the CEO and leading your team to success. Get a front row seat where you will get practical advice from industry experts on how you can level up your home service business. Get ready to take some notes because we're going to jump right into it here. All right, everyone, it's Dave Mormon here, home service business coach. We're honored today uh, with a special guest, uh, Mr. Tommy Mello. Welcome to the show, my man. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited. Yeah, man, I got to say hi to you very briefly in August at the huge convention there in Nashville. You were one of the the keynote speakers, which was awesome, and uh, got you teed up here for the podcast. So um, you got a bunch of listeners here, Tommy, uh, with home service businesses, a lot of companies under a million bucks. So I've got a few questions, man. I'd love to just kind of deep dive into your mindset to try and uh, drop some value on the listeners. But um, before we do, man, I think a lot of people know who you are. Uh, Tommy Mello, your owner at A1 Garage Door. Um, do you mind just telling us a little bit of your backstory and how you got even started in in the home service space? Yeah, so I'm originally from a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. And when you're a kid growing up in Detroit, you learn to shovel snow and mow lawns if you want extra money. So that was my first start is uh, Ellie and Tommy's landscaping. E, e and e and T, e T is what it was. And then I moved out to Phoenix, started a small landscaping company, was bartending. And one of my roommates said, do you know how to paint garage doors? And I'm like, well, not really, but how much does it pay? And he goes, I can get you a hundred bucks a door. You pay for the paint and the tape and whatnot. So I got to the point where I was painting 10 doors a day on the weekend. And um, I kept meeting up with technicians. One day, me and my roommate decided we were going to start a garage door business. Didn't have a clue. I mean, sweat equity. I ran all the calls. I was answering the phones. We didn't have inventory systems. One old truck we'd share. And... You know, I learned a lot. I fell down forward a lot of times. Had my mom and stepdad working for me in 2010. And it didn't come easy. Everybody's like, man, I want what Tommy has. Well, there's sacrifice, there's relationships. There's a lot of things that you got to learn the hard way. I think if anybody was given a lot of money to go start a business, they'd lose it all. When you're small, you make make smaller mistakes, not with as much money. And now I've kind of got like tunnel vision on how to make a successful business. And a lot of times it's the owner and founder getting in the way. They're not prioritizing the bigger things. They're pushing pennies. We did a Tommy, uh, we call it the Tommy Tuesday talk with all my Garage Door Freedom members. We're talking about inventory. Some people buy enough inventory for six months because they get a good deal on it. They're holding their vendors. They're trying to get cheaper prices, longer payment terms. I want my vendors to help me get in and out of there quickly and be consistent and make sure my bills are accurate and I wanted to be healthy. And it took years and years to figure this out, but started A1 Garage Wars in 2007, um, did about 200 million last year. Next, this this year, the goal is hiring and top grading A players, improving my gross close rate, which is service to sales, uh, and a lot of acquisitions. If I could do those few things, we're redoing a lot of the technology that'll morph into a multi-billion dollar company. Right now we're valued at probably say just under a billion. Wow. Seriously, man, 
amazing. And I'm sure you have a ton of people looking up to you in the space, man. I kind of think you're like a beacon of hope in the space, man, because you have like cracked the code. You figured this out. I guess my first question for you, Tommy, were you born with this like huge mindset of always thinking bigger and next and bigger and next? Or do you think that was like developed along the way as you grew this thing? You know, I'm kind of driven and passionate. Like whatever I was going to do, I was going to do it really good. Um, but I had no idea. I, people always ask, did you ever think you could grow this big? And I'm like, I, I think I was destined to be a billionaire, uh, you know, and it might sound cocky, but I didn't have a lot of money growing up. My mom worked three jobs. My dad was still there and helping me out, loved me. And uh, they always said you could do anything you want, but I'm a math guy and everything's just a, an equation. If you want to get to a billion dollars of revenue, um, I think I originally put, yeah, a billion of revenue. I need 2,000 technicians at 500 grand a piece. Yeah. And I've done the math every which way. That's 100 million, but I've done the math to, to just reverse engineer what needs to happen today. A lot of people have a goal. They say, here's what I want to do this year. Well, what do you need to do this quarter, this month, this week, and today? What's the most important thing you can do to impact your business? And a lot of people don't know how to prioritize that. I, I would just say, like, I'm a, I like to grow things. I'm not happy sitting there going, we're just going to have a flat year this year. It's like my mind goes into, what do we need? We need leads. We need conversion rate. We need to book the phone calls. And we need conversion to be high. And so how do I continue to grow these core principles? A lot of people are working on all kinds of stuff that doesn't even move the needle. And I'm like, you don't even know your call booking rate. You don't know what it costs you to acquire a customer. You have no idea what your technician conversion rate is per tech. And you're worried about this? Like you got no good candidates. Look at your Indeed and Glassdoor score. You you got no influx of great talent. And they're all worried. Do I get rebranded? Do I do this? Do I do this? And I'm like, like, it's not easy, but to get over a million dollars, I did that my second year. Yeah. Yeah. So you just think in a totally different playing field and you keep wanting, like even if you hit 500 million, you hit a billion, you're always thinking next and scale. And and I feel like on kind of that rocket fuel test of visionary integrator, you're probably like a maximum to the moon visionary. Is that correct to say? Very, very, very high visionary. I was like very little integrator. I've had to learn to integrate things, but I'm not great at it. Okay. So tell me this, man, you had a quote on your podcast, which is amazing. Everyone should check out guys. It's the home service expert with Tommy Mello. You said a quote, you said, um, there may be someone in the world that could outwork you, but no one will ever out delegate you. And I wrote, it was a writer downer for me, man. Uh, can you talk to the little guy? You just mentioned it. They're doing all these different things in their business. How did delegation serve you? in scaling this thing, man, significantly. I'm, I'm really curious to hear your take on this. Well, it's kind of like revenues for vanity, profits for sanity. Some people brag that they work 14 hour days, 80 hour weeks. And they're so, it's like, I outwork you. I mean, I hear these guys, these mentors, these uh, influencers out there saying, I'll outwork everybody. And it's not, billionaires don't outwork people. They know who to call when, and they they see the success leaves clues. If I want to dominate Angie, I'm going to go to the number one person on Angie in all the markets. Find them. Angie, success leaves clues. Do you want to see how the t algorithm works on Google? 
search for a HVAC repair in my area. The number one guy, go ask them a question. So when I say delegate, literally there's responsibilities in delegation. It's not dumping. And it's literally, what are we trying to do? Why are we trying to do it? When does it need to get done? By who's responsible? What resources do you have? And there's a proper way to delegate and hold people accountable. Put it on a Monday board or a Trello board. And Al Levy taught me a lot of this stuff and the seven power contractor, he's amazing. But I think that I don't want to do anything that I could get done for less than I make per hour. There's a great book by Dan Martell, Buy Back Your Time. I don't need to do my own landscaping. I don't need to, I enjoy walking the dogs, but I don't walk them every night. We got a dog walker. Where is my time best served? And it's through leadership, vision, having the vision and making sure everybody knows, like telling everybody, creating a culture. And so if I could hire somebody to do something for less than I make per hour, most of the time I'm not going to do it, but I can't have my executive assistant wish somebody a happy birthday from me. You got to be take the time to do that kind of stuff. So there's certain things. First thing I ask is, does this need to be done by me or can it be delegated? And if so, who's going to delegate and get it done on the timeline? What resources? So if I told you, I said, David, I'm going to give you a hundred people and $2 million to get this done. You say, yeah, no problem. I can get it done. So for me, the question is never, no, I can't do that. It's what resources do you need to get it done? Yeah. Amazing. And was that like a learned skill, man? Like go back to the day when you're painting 10 garage doors on a Saturday, like you were the guy doing the thing. I think a lot of listeners on this show might say, oh, easy for Tommy to say he's got a huge business. Of course he can press a button and call someone, but that doesn't also happen overnight. So like what if you can remember back to the days were there ever days that tommy wasn't a skilled de delegator and where'd you find like the money to actually do that well it's all sweat equity it didn't start with a lot of money and the money starts to compound when it's reinvested into the company i think a lot of entrepreneurs they say oh my buddy's flipping real estate made a million dollars this year i should do that my other buddy opened a bar that sounds fun and they start divesting out of the one thing that got them everything instead of reinvesting it they literally say that whether they become a gambler or invest in real estate, focus on the core thing. There's a great book by uh, Gary Keller called The One Thing. Focus on this picture your business as a five-gallon bucket. Most of the people at a million dollars don't even have a thousandth of it full. Until that overflows, because at that point, you got the resources to do other things. You could hire leadership and build other companies. But I think that back in the day, my hourly rate was probably $25. So I had to do a lot of the work. That's where that test comes in. What do you make per hour? What are you averaging per week in salary divided by a 40 or 50 hour work week? If you're still the guy making $25, $30 an hour, you're still doing a lot of the work. So in that case, I say build an org chart of every single, single thing you're doing. And the thing that annoys you the most, payroll and HR. Circle that one and hire that person for that so you don't hate coming in on Mondays. Find the ones you can't stand and keep the ones you enjoy doing while the business is growing. Yeah. Because there's certain ones that just drive you crazy. You're like, I hate this. If someone would just take this, I hate inventory. Someone would take this off, off my plate. Then hire that so you enjoy Mondays again. Yeah. And find where your zone of genius is. I think Dan Sullivan calls it that, which is the one thing you it really enjoy. Two X. Yeah. So what, what would you say, Tommy, in current A1 is your zone of genius right now? And I know you've touched on this in some of your talks, but I think the listeners want to know if Tommy strips away everything, what's like the one or two huge value adds to the business at this point? 
I'm a marketer and motivator. I, I help push people to their limits and take their dreams if they want to make 80,000 and tell them write down 200,000, reverse engineer it. I think I motivate the team really well and kind of disconnect the silos, keep us communicating and keep that North Star in the right position to understand where we're all running towards. And then I love marketing. I mean, I, I'm not probably as great as the VP of marketing on our team, but I'm very, very uh, in touch with marketing. And marketing does not mean just getting leads for clients. It doesn't mean just broken garage doors. It means where's the flow of good applicants coming in? Because if you can get really good canvases, good people and teach them garage doors, they have great eye contact, good tonality, tell a great story, smiling, then you're going to win. Yeah. Amazing. I want to hear your view, man. I didn't prep you on this question or really any of these, but tough economy out there, rising interest rates, people are bootstrapping their business. What's your view on a home service business owner taking on, let's say, a 50 or $100,000 of debt line of credit to get to 1 million, 2 million, 5 million necessary today? Or would you say, forget that and get your first truck cash flowing? What would be your view on debt to take this thing to the next level? Well, I'm not a big fan of debt in the early stages because you tend to lose it. You tend to not, you got a bigger chunk of money, so the mistakes are bigger. I think going into this economy, you need to be right sized. A lot of people say, I want to do what you did. They start building a training center. They start ordering 10 trucks. They they pay, and I do agree, you should pay to get a rebrand because rebrands cause people to come work for you. The customer pays more money. Uh, your cost on Google goes down. But you can't use every penny you've got on this one thing. So a lot of people are trying to get there in five years, what took me 20 years. And now I could get there in three years with the right amount of money and the knowledge I have of all the mistakes because I say figuratively that I got a lot of bruises and scars from the mistakes I've made that I won't make again because I remember when I made it and I'm like, no, we can't do that. So they they say experience trumps all. And what I would tell you from from my point of view is what we're working on right now is, is just making sure that the lead flow stays, continues to go up Whereas everybody that didn't make budget last year was because they're blaming it on their marketing company. They're like, we didn't get enough leads. Of course you didn't get enough leads. It's not COVID. It's not the demand's not. There was 10 years of demand in two years. And you think it's all going to be rainbows and sunshine every day? This is what makes a great business. Who can make it through this stuff and who could excel in the bad times? There's always the opportunity. When a stock goes up, a lot of people make money. When a stock goes down, somebody shorted that stock, they made a lot of money. Buyer's economy, seller's economy, I can pick up it turns into a huge buyer's economy, I can buy companies for the cheap, right? Uh, on the, on a deal. So I think that some businesses right now, they give up marketing first because they're loyal to their people, but it's not fair to be loyal to two people that aren't good performers and watch the whole company go under because you had a relationship. I don't believe in tenure. I believe in mediocre mer meritocracy, meaning you got the merit, you did the best, you're going to get the best jobs. You're the best CSR. You came in two months ago. This person's been here 10 years. This person's doing way better. They're going to answer the first call. It's going to be at a, a round robin that's waited for them. And I and think you, a lot of people... Go ahead. Sorry, you, you've mentioned, man, you've got almost all your roles now on some element of performance pay. A what is that? Is that correct too? Yeah, for the most part. You can't have every single person, but all my C-suite is focused on EBITDA. A lot of the VPs are EBITDA and gross profit. 
certain certain ones in the company, like technicians are performance pay, CSRs are performance pay, dispatchers are performance pay. Okay. Okay. Su- super cool. With with the marketing though, man, like do you have a rough KPI just for the listeners taking notes that let's say we got a million dollar business and if you look back in the day when you were there, are we throwing 5%, 15, 20% of top line back into mark? And I know it's hard to paint with a broad brush, but just generally for a growth minded entrepreneur, do you have a marketing percent of revenue? You're like, this would be a good number to look at. Well, there's a couple of things there. I- I've always said 10% is the right number to spend 10% of revenue, but also you need to be a 10% profit. If you drop below 10% profit, we've got some issues. And usually I find most of the issues in the call center. They're not booking all the calls. It's out of the service area. Why am I getting a marketing call out of my service area? Well, there's a Valpac that we're offering in an area that we don't even service that area. So you got to have complete transparency. Make sure your CSRs are honest to find out what the problems are. Why am I getting all these calls in out of area? What? Why am I getting all these parts calls? Well, there's a Google campaign for parts and, and you, you can't identify the problems if there's no transparency. So uh, I'd say 10%. I'd say if I was going to greenfield in a new market, I'd go all the way up to 25%. It, but but I would forego profit to take market share. And there are times where you can do that, but you got to have a pretty big company. When you're planning on taking a draw and a payout of a business, you should be a 10% on top of that because you don't have the money to greenfield. It's expensive. I'm glad I didn't have anything when I started because I would have lost it all. Now you throw me a bunch of money. I know strategically how to deploy that money based on certain KPIs. Just to define for greenfielding for the listeners, you're saying you're taking, uh, say, a manager at A1 and you're dropping them in a new territory and you're going to forego profitability for a year, two years, three years just to take market share. Is that what you mean with that? Yeah, it's organic growth. and, And there's one of two ways to grow. You buy a company. And that costs a lot of money, or you put it into marketing dollars to take market share. They both work. Um, Greenfield has its advantages, but buy and build is a great advantage too. The hardest part about buying a bunch of businesses is unlike what you'll hear a lot of people say, you don't buy good businesses and leave them and just give them the resources. You need to completely integrate those businesses. You need to have one VP of marketing. You need to have one CFO. A lot of these small companies, these PE companies go out, they try to buy all these companies, leave them intact. They're like, well, who does your insurance? Well, we got seven different insurance companies. Well, who, where do you get your trucks from? Well, we got three different vendors for that. Well, who's your call center? We've got eight call centers. There's no economies of scale. No one wants to buy that sloppy mess. You've got to incorporate it all in one structure. Hmm. I'm curious, man, from a high-level strategy we see franchising a lot in home services. Was there like a key reason or two that you chose to like not franchise out your business and have all these owner operators across the country? I'm just curious your your take on that because we see that a lot in the home service space. Well, a lot of people that are lazy, they can't make it in the real world. They say I'm going to franchise because I got a good idea and I don't have the money to expand. So It'd be easy because, wait a minute, if I sell each franchise for $30,000 and take 7%, I don't need a lot of money, but they don't know, they don't have any SOPs, standard operating procedures, checklists, the right CRM, a national website, national call center, a plug and play model for a turnkey operation. So I think most franchises, not all franchises, are built in a way that's like, pay me for my decent idea, you build the business and I'll take a percentage. 
and it's lazy. That's why a lot of franchises don't work. Now, when I franchise today, absolutely, but not with A1. But if I wanted to start a model, but I'd be very, very specific on who I had to buy that franchise. I'm the franchisor, the franchisees. I'd probably allow one out of 100. They'd have to be well-financed. They'd have to go through my training program. They'd have to go work in a market that's existing. And everybody's like, oh, I'm just going to franchise. And I'm like, yeah, you must have a great business in three markets that's making 20% at the bare minimum. No, 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 but I got a good idea that nobody else has. And I'm like, you go look at their business. They have no inventory systems. They have no manuals. They have no processes in place, but they've got a good idea. And of course, when your young, eager entrepreneurship takes over, you're like, this is the quickest, easiest way for me to scale, but they don't have any money. And it sounds great until you let down all those franchisees. And they're like, I need more help. And you go, well, I don't have the experience. I don't have a way to help. Yeah. So you never really entertained the franchise option too much in, in growing this thing? Not in A1, but if I was going to franchise again, I'd go make it work in five markets corporate owned. And I'd say, we've got a model that works in not only my city I live in, but cities across the United States. We made it work in uh, different uh, weather. We made it work in, uh, you know, Southern is different than Northern, you know, just the, some of the traits. Yeah. So I, I'd say I made it work everywhere. And this is a model I know that if you hit this and I'd handhold the first five, make sure they're successful and continue to build it out so that it's it's more and more worked out to where the right person coming in to get to multi-millions under three years. Wow. Amazing. I want to hear, man, you've touched on this a lot in your podcast, and I think it's something you're you're kind of coined for in the industry. And that comes around owner operators pricing their projects too cheap. You said if we throw 10% in marketing and 10% net profit, we haven't even touched on the owner taking a salary. A lot of times, Tommy, as you know, that's not the reality for most home service businesses. So I'd love to hear you riff on for a little bit. Your answer to my question, which is how do we fix the underbidding pricing problem in in the trades. You see it in garage doors. You see it in landscape painting. The service doesn't matter. It's just it, we're pricing jobs too cheap. So I'd love to hear your take on this. Most business owners aren't really business owners. They bought themselves a full-time job. They last 24-7. They don't get weekends or holidays off. They bought, they started a business to have more free time, but that's the last thing they've got. A lot of people are better off going to work for a really good, sophisticated company because they say, I can't charge those prices, but yet they pay their guys like crap. There's no, there's no incentive to work for you. There's no insurance. There's no PTO. There's nothing good. You drive used trucks, you, you know? So here's what happens. You say, I give a good deal to my customers so I can screw over my employees. And if you told them to charge more, they'd say, I can't. My customers will never go for that because most people, when they start a business, they were a technician. And here's what they say. They go call around to the top 10 competitors and say, I'm going to do charge a little bit less and give a little bit more. And even though they don't know the people they're copying are dead broke, they pay themselves a hundred grand a year. They're barely making payroll. So they're copying it. They're, they're copying the, the, the competitors that aren't profitable. And that's, a road to get to the bottom. So you've got to say, wait a minute, why would people pay more for you? Well, we give a better value. We've got options. We we have finance options. Our parts are trademarked. They're higher cycle life. We can show them the difference. Our people go in there, they create an experience versus we're not just showing our butt crack hanging out there with a non-uniform. Well, they're saying, hey, uh, uh, well, yeah, we'll fix the problem. 
No, I don't sell people what they need. I sell them what they want. They want nice things. They, this is an investment into their home. So if you're going to just be the cheapest in the market, you're a commodity and you don't deserve a place in the marketplace, the marketplace will see to it that you don't stay in business for a very long time. Yeah. And and Tommy, why do you think it is that these business owners tell themselves the story? Because it is all a mindset that in my market, Tommy, the customers aren't going to aren't going to pay that high price you're talking about. Why, why do you think that's the case? Well, most of the time, they weren't a very good technician in the first place. They were never really great at sales. And they go, they only see the cost of the parts. They don't know how much you paid the CSR and insurance and truck and gas and to keep the lights on. So they go, wait a minute. If they paid $100 for the part and they sold it for $500, they made $400 profit. I can make a killing with this. But they never really knew the math that went into keeping the lights on and the dispatch pay and the service type pay and the phone bill and all the other costs, workers' comp, and it goes on and on, the lawyers for the LLC or the C-Corp or whatever it might be. So they're just naive. And then they go around in the first year, they don't pay proper taxes. They do a lot of the work themselves. They're like, man, I had a good year. I made 140 grand. Well, by the time you pay the taxes correctly and by the time you really invested in the business to get the right stuff. You didn't really make a lot of money. And it just gets addicting because you're too prideful to say, I've already told my mom, my wife, everybody that I'm going to do this. And even when it's not looking good, you don't want to give up because you got too much pride involved. So a lot of times what I look at is they say, yeah, I'm not getting the clients you're getting. And I go, well, let me look at your marketing. You're doing something on offer up and Craigslist. You're doing door to door sales. Of course, those clients are going to pay as much as the demand to call from Google saying my shit's broken. You guys were the first with the best reputation. Whatever it costs, just come fix it. My clients are the best clients because they go to the first one with the best reputation that they recognize that they see it in their neighborhood. And they say, you guys are everywhere. We want a big company that's going to be around where we, they don't want a big, big, big 800 number company, but they want somebody that's going to show up. That's going to be part of the community. That's going to fix it right. And if something doesn't go right, they're going to be back there tomorrow to fix it or back there next year or five years. Yeah. They want peace yeah. of mind because all of us have got the cheaper price, you know, and it's not worked out. I bought a cheaper roof. It went bad in two years. I thought I was a hustler getting the best deals, getting like, you know, guys that barely spoke English to do it. And then boom, there it leaked and I had to redo everything. And yeah. so homeowners yeah. are pretty smart. They know you, you get what you pay for most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Do you think Tommy guys and gals figured out the pricing problem and like let's just say all your competitors in the garage space that are these owner operators let's say they two or three or four x their prices where they need to be would would that matter to your business that you're running in any way or do you even look at what other competitors are doing at this point no i don't think that would help me at all i mean i think we have the a1 effect but when we go into a market everybody's able to raise their prices I've had a lot of competitors say, thank you for coming into my market. I was worried that you were going to take all the business. But what I've learned is there's more than enough to go around. Just because I'm winning doesn't mean you have to lose. So I think pricing is you got to add up all your bills, pay everybody very generously. The way you come up with your pricing model is don't look around at anybody else. Figure out what it costs you to fulfill a job and then add a good margin, 15, 20%. And that shapes your pricing. A lot of people, you cannot take A1's pricing compared to a small company with five employees 
We just had a huge holiday party. We're taking everybody to Mexico. We charge a premium price, but we live in a capitalistic country, brother. Mm-hmm. Nobody's fixing pricing. The fact that people pay because they see the value and you get all these little Facebook trolls to go out there and go out. How could they charge that? Well, you still work for yourself in, and out of your house. You have a nasty truck and you're so proud of having a company that completely disappears when you stop working. You will go, you will, you literally leave on vacation. The company fails and you're so proud that you charge less than everybody. How do you sleep at night? How do you sleep at night? Knowing that you're not taking care of anybody, knowing you're paying your employees like crap, knowing that you'll never be able to show up for your kids in a bigger way because you're working 24-7. How do you sleep at night? You're mad about the prices I charge when I get very little one-star reviews. We show up the same day with a smile, with a wrapped truck. The trucks don't break down. They're all insured properly. I pay taxes. Everything's right. And, you, you know, the phone you have, the iPhone or the Droid, that you paid $1,500 for. Why do you pay, buy a pair of Jordans for $500? You know, people say, I would never pay that price, but here they are with a Rolex watch and a brand new Beamer. They're so yeah. full of shit. I get so annoyed by the people who say, oh, how could you spend that kind of money? You go to the steakhouse, it's bringing a 27% bottom line. Everywhere you go, you go to Papa John's and you, you don't complain about the cost of the pizza. You just belittle yourself enough when you look at the mirror to say, I'm not worth it. I'm pathetic. I can't charge a price because I am not a good service. We show up scrubby. We don't do training. We hire anybody that could fog a mirror. This gets me going because people don't value themselves if they charge less. If the only thing they compete on is price, then that's pathetic. That's very, very, this is not conducive to a good environment and a good culture for your people. So good, man. It's almost like this martyr syndrome, though, in home services that the business needs to be small. The owner needs to work 100 hours a week and pay people like a shitty wage. I'm curious, though, man. Like, let's say we go two decades in the future. Was this like a gener? Like, we're kind of similar ages, man. Like, our parents' generation, maybe they they DIY'd, and some of these guys went into trades and and started competing on time and materials for fifty dollars an hour. In twenty years from now, though, as we get older, will this like gap from what contractors are charging and what they should charge will that be there or? Are the big A1s of the world eventually going to, these guys are just going to get 10 grand for their phone number and get steamrolled. I'm curious, like 20 years down the line, what you see as it pertains to this underbid pricing model. Oh, it's going to be the rise of the big companies that are better trained investing more in their people. I mean, literally Amazon, Walmart, Google, the largest companies, there's already happening. PE companies are in real estate and dental offices and they're big in home service now. Some markets are still untapped, but they're going to be found. So what, what's going to happen is the small guy is going to have a hard time competing because they don't get the same economies of scale. My CSRs can book 37 calls per day. You might not even have 37 calls coming in, so you, cannot, you, you can't get the economies of scale. You'll never be able to purchase. So how do you win? David and Goliath. David can move quicker. He can make quicker decisions. He can swivel faster. He can, be, he can make a bigger... He can stop and ask a customer for three reviews instead of one. He can put a yard sign out when it's a lot easier to do that when you're smaller. They could get involved in the community. Community. They could show up to a football game and be handing out cards and passing out Gatorade. So there is an opportunity still, but I think the gap's going to get smaller of the opportunities. And I think it's going to be survival of the fittest. And the fittest are going to be the companies that provide for their people. They invest in training. They recruit smart. And it, how is it really fair? It's not fair to compete with me now. I... I I, I might, this might sound cocky, but I don't think anybody stands a chance. Although I'd love my competitors to win. That's why I coach them, but they really, 
very few people have the ability to compete with us. Very curious, man. And then I want to talk about your book. However much you can touch on this is up to your discretion, but 10 years from now, what what does the business look like and what's Tommy doing? I, again, are you guys staying garage doors? I'm sure you can see the home service landscape, $600 billion industry, painters, pressure washers. Are you guys at some point going to start looking at the home services at large or are you going to just stay dominating garage doors and potentially even go worldwide? I'm just curious, like 10 years, what do you see? So I try not to make a 10-year plan. I try to, I, I, although I got a, my 70, when I turned 70, my North Star of what I've done the last 30 years, I look at A1 in the five-year capacity. And we'll, we'll trade it again to another company and be working on an IPO. And I'll be rolling up a massive amount of companies. Hopefully the guys in Garage Door Freedom will have a great, great, great exit. 10x what they could do alone. Um, but, you know, I've got a lot of money that I, I, you know, I took some chips off the table. So I invest in things that I know I can move the needle. You know, when it becomes, you know, four or 500 million of EBITDA, it's not as fun for me. I don't know Sarbanes-Oxley. I'm not the guy to bring us public. I'm not a seat. I'm not a front-facing CEO like that. So I'll probably be in the mix of growing things, but my plan is not to work the hours I've worked the last decade. It's going to be three to four hours a day, good decisions, hire very, very good people that are capable, that have been where I want to go, rinse and repeat. I mean, I'll never stop working, but I don't see myself. There's no reason because once again, my principle is you can find somebody to do it less than you at that point, you could hire great leaders making several hundred thousand dollars a year plus a fat-ass bonus mm-hmm. and have them do it for you. I'm going to continue these principles. And as it grows into multi-billions, I, I mean, look at um, Richard Branson. He owns 100 companies, works three hours a day. I'm not Richard Branson. I'm not Elon Musk, but success leaves clues, so follow the clues. And just look at what they've done and look at how they live their lives. As they're enjoying the journey, they're living, they still love to grow things but they're not letting it consume them, but it takes money to get to that point. It's amazing. I'm seeing you too, man. Like you're really doing a great job growing your personal brand quickly too. Do you see that fitting in your bigger vision too? Like, you know, you networking with Dan Martell and Andy Frisella and building like this, like this guy came out of the home service space and now he's like in that club. Is that kind of part of your vision uh, as well where, where, where you see things? Yeah, I think personal branding is a huge deal. It opens up doors, right? It allows me to network to bigger, better, smarter people, make the phone call to the right person. A lot of them have had experiences I haven't had. So I want to continue in the home service space for the next foreseeable future. But, you know, these guys are all looking at that. Some of them are getting into roofing and coaching and and solar. And they've all realized through COVID is these blue collar industries, there's a lot of freaking money. We we were pretty solid during COVID. I mean, we were essential, right? Every movie theater shut down, every bowling alley, real estate dropped. We were killing it. So now everybody, all eyes on us. It's our time. And now it's opening up the door to a lot of opportunities. I want to be the guy you call when you're a great business and you say, look, it, I'm at 3 million of EBITDA. I want to get to 30. You got a good business. You're a hard worker. You got a good culture. I can put the money, time, and resources in to, to just compound that. And that makes sense for me, right? It's almost like one day I'll probably be in private equity, but it'll be my own private equity company that I'm kind of hand-holding through the process. You might be missing a great CFO. You might have a crappy HR team. You might not know how to hire right. You might not have a good deal with enterprise to get the vehicles when you need. And that's where I feel like, I think there's 
there's very few companies I couldn't impact in a great way. I mean, I don't want to get into the $200 million EBITDA companies because they're a lot harder. There's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more going on there to unpack. I could unpack yeah. most companies in a week. They would take two months and then I probably couldn't move the needle very much. So Tommy, do you think almost doing kind of what Alex Hermosi is doing with acquisition.com, like you have certain businesses hit a threshold of two, three, four million EBITDA, and then Tommy's group would look to invest and blow it up 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, and then sell it. Is that kind of what you're, what you're referring to? Something similar to that? Yeah. You know, I say Alex Hermosi is more like me, but I say, I, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess, um, you know, he did it with Jim Secrets and and the Jim Consulting. He buys more of consulting groups. He's got a specific buy box, which is smart. My buy box is mostly home service and looking at certain KPIs. And with the AI technology that we're investing in, I think it's just, it's going to be harder and harder to keep up because we're double downing every year, every month, every week in technology. And eventually there's just going to be, it's going to be very hard to compete because we've invested so much in a centralized system and the APIs and the webhooks and the AI, it's just like, how do you compete? Because taking white-collar principles, applying to the blue-collar industries, you know, I, I've learned a lot from a lot of people. It's very rare I meet somebody that's got the hunger, the humility, and the growth mindset to compete. Because, you know, once you get married and you have a bunch of kids and you, you, you just don't have the time. And, and I don't pride myself on that because I wish I had three kids running around, but I, I still got time, so... It's going to be hard to compete when I could jump on a plane tomorrow and be there and not miss a whole lot. hundred percent. I want to be respectful of your time, man, but I do want to end with one last thing. I want you, I'm holding up a copy here of your book, Elevate. I've read through it. I got your copy in Nashville. Um, I bet Tommy, you're like this. I got a second copy on my bookshelf right beside the Bible, man. We got the Bible, we got Elevate. So I want to hear though, man, I like asking authors, Why'd you write the book? I love always asking and hearing kind of the motivation. I know we've touched on some things today, but uh, I kind of want to hear like your heart behind why you wrote Elevate and what listeners can expect digging into this one. Yeah, so I wrote the book, Home Service Millionaire. I had 12 co-authors that helped me write the book. And right after I got the bug to write, I kept a Google file and I started putting notes and shit would happen. And I put it in there and circumstances and things. And I came up with this epiphany as I sold the company last year, half of it. And throughout the process of these people care so much, they're my family. And they have dreams too. So I got my dreams got to be big enough that their dreams could fit inside. And it happens through, through merit, through performance pay. So the book is really riddled with things about caring more, having a dream so big and being a, the, the greatest visionary and putting their needs first, finding out their big why and applying that to what they could do at work. That way I never need to tell you, you know, David, you, you need to do a better job. I'm going to put you on a performance improvement plan. I'm going to say, David, listen, you told me you wanted to take your dad on a fishing trip. You told me you wanted to renew your vows in Hawaii. You told me you wanted to buy a house in, in Maui, whatever. I got to wait for you to get there quicker. How bad do you want this? And then we could talk about what the training you're going to need to hit these goals quicker is it should be a pleasant experience on a one-on-one -on -one of how we could win together rather than disciplinary action and performance improvement plans. So the book is about performance pay. Brian Davenport talks a lot about scorecards in the book. Al Levy was in there. Building a team, Jody Underhill. So I had three co-authors. And it's really 
about building a business where everybody wins. My vendors win. Because they ask my vendors, how do I help you win? What could I sell that's your highest profit margin? How can you train my guys to sell your highest profit margin things? My customers get to win. My internal customers get to win. The employees, I get to win. The competition wins because when we go into a market, everybody raises their prices. We all could win in business. Unlike sports where it's a win-lose, the game of business is infinite, hopefully, and we get to win and everybody around us can still win. We're so taught this, this win and lose. And so we think, man, if this guy's doing good, I must be doing bad. That's not the way business works. Yeah, it's amazing, man. And I think in home services, a lot of companies that do crack the code on finding success, oftentimes that success ends with the owner making you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year and, and, you know, taking off and traveling the world, but their team's kind of left holding the bag, making 50 to 70 K a year. And I think it's very uh, attractive what you're doing at a one creating high income earners. You said you take everyone on a trip. Is it, is it Mexico? You said that you guys are all going. Yeah. There's 60 of us going. Like we believe that not everybody, it's not an ESOP where everybody's just gets a little chunk. It's the highest performers, but they know what they need to do that year to hit it. It's 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 very subjective and goal setting. It's not there's no I think this is what you hit. You go on the trip. You knew about this in the beginning of the year. So I believe that the top, top, top performers in any category get an opportunity to partake in equity in these trips. Not to say we don't do great holiday parties and other things. I just went jumped out of the sky with a bunch of guys that didn't hit pinnacle, but I think it's important to have bowling and do stuff with the team all the time. We go to the park, we do all kinds of stuff, but you know, this whole concept of everybody gets to win. Most owners do. And when it comes down to it, they say, I only care about my team, but when they get the money, none of it's shared. They lie to themselves. I've seen owners over and over and over say they put themselves behind the team, but yet when it comes to getting money, none of them do shit. They don't share. So they lie to themselves. They lie to everybody around them. When it comes down to it, the money comes in. Boom. Selfish. Yeah. I, I mean, over and over and over. You think they're the, they go to church every Sunday. They're a good parent. They're good to their, faithful to their wife or husband. And then all of a sudden the money comes. They're like these people, they do everything. They didn't get a red set. Mm. Bullshit. Mm. And it happens over and over and over again. Yeah. You everybody see- has great intentions so the money comes. You want to see someone's value, look at their their credit card statement and look at their calendar, right? So that's that's an interesting thing you've picked up on. I guess last question, Tommy, is like, let's say the owners listen this far. Tommy's got a massive business. When you were little and you couldn't offer multiple six-figure salaries and trips to Mexico and all this cool shit you're doing now, what would what would you say back to younger Tommy to to I guess my question, man, is it possible to get a level talent when you're still small, like sub a million dollars? Could you bring in a rock star or just would you say you got to grow revenue to get a seat at the table? Well, can you afford Bisquick from Costco and make your people pancakes? Can you take them bowling at three bucks per game? Can you have a picnic and have a volleyball tournament or play bags? I mean, these things don't cost a lot of money. You, you you could do things that barely cost anything, but it's time and investment into the team. So I would say you create the right culture. You get the all-stars that gives you enough money to hire and pay people more. The difference is if a guy is good and it's a commission-based or performance pay, a CSR that books 40 calls, the other guys are booking 18, that CSR booking 40 should make double the pay. So you don't need as many people. You just need A-plus players. When it's small, you need the A-plus players that could still make a lot of money, but you don't need a lot of them. So I would say 
rather than having a bunch of mediocrity in your company, pay people a lot of money, but it's all a percentage. The way I craft these performance pay structures is I know I'm winning when they make a lot of money. So I can rejoice and say this guy made 300 grand because I know I did really, really great. Don't make mistakes in your performance pay where you ever have to get like agitated when somebody makes a lot of money. You made more than I did. Great, because you earned us a million dollars and grew the enterprise value of the company a lot. I see a lot of mistakes made when it comes to performance pay, but you should never get upset that somebody made a ton of money, especially if it's commissions. If your commission structure is set up correctly or your performance pay, then don't get upset when somebody makes a lot of money because they're doing the work of 10. Do you think then, keep saying last question, this is the last one, I promise. Do you think a company truly can be built with all A players, Tommy? Or do you think inherently there can be like campers and climbers, right? The climbers always want to grow, 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 buy the house, get the car. Can you have campers in your company that just say, Tommy, give me my 80 grand a year? Or do you think your culture will repel those people out the door? Well, you got to have some in your company that's enormously when it continues to grow, but those eight players are vital when it's smaller. What I would say is uh, the worst employee is a good employee. Bad employees get fired. Good employees take you straight up. Good employees just kind of skate by. They never get written up. They're just kind of floating. They're never like, I want to be number one, but I don't want to be last is what they say. So they kind of hover. And I'd be very careful by maintaining just B players, either figure out their why and motivate them to come up or get them out quickly. It's not always possible. You might not need a warehouse guy that's like, Johnny on the spot, everything it says is perfect order. He just needs to unload the truck and make sure it gets loaded up into the, the inventory for the trucks. You don't need like some crazy badass in the warehouse. So you don't need this cleaning lady that could do three buildings in the time it takes one. But in certain roles, you need a badass. Your CFO, your CMO, uh, the, the culture, who's driving the culture. They need to be badasses. There's a few key players that you do not want the B squad. Yeah. So you want a great employee or you want a bad employee to show them out? For most roles, especially the higher level ones. Yeah, the, the, the highest level is they're great at leaders, they're great at communication. And the one thing that Ken Goodrich told me is if you're A-plus players, your C-suite, your VP level, and they're not spending 15 hours on themselves trying to grow, whether that's podcasts, listening to books, networking, then they're not going to make it in your company, Tommy, because you're growing so fast that when you outgrow these people, you're going to need to replace them because they didn't keep up. You gave them a fair shot to tell them. You'll invest in them. You'll get. You'll send them the seminars. You'll invest in podcasts. You'll buy them the books. So as long as you're upfront about it and communicate upfront and say, you need to grow with me, you find yourself going, man, these guys are just not growing. You need to replace them. I'm sorry. They might be family. You could give them money. You can put them in a different spot on the bus, but still, you're not doing anybody a favor by keeping somebody that doesn't belong in the company that's not a great leader that's going to grow as fast as you. You think you're you're loyal? Your loyalty will put you out of business before anything. Wow. It's amazing, brother. Well, tell us, Tommy, phenomenal stuff, man. Very motivating. We've mentioned your book. I'm going to link up where where everyone can get that. Your podcast is the home service expert. Uh, where else could people uh, kind of see what you're up to, man, and, and join your journey? Yeah, so the social media on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook, official Tommy Mello. Uh, Tommy Mello, without the W. And my Facebook group is Home Service Expert, um, same as the podcast. There's 10,000 people in there. We answer questions all the time. I mean, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. You can go on LinkedIn, Tommy Mello, you can see. And I try to help out as many people because I was once a small guy. A lot of people paid it forward to help me. So if it, anybody needs to get a hold of me, we do shop tours once a month. 
I don't charge for them. We show them everything on how we hire our training center. They come to Phoenix. It's fun tour. It lasts a couple hours. And I'm an open book, man. I don't, I don't hold a lot in. I tell everybody what I'm doing because telling people what you're going to do and then actually doing it are two different things. I tell a lot of people, they say, I'm going to do it, but they never do. 1% actually apply this stuff. Hmm. And I wish everybody did, but they say, oh yeah, they got all their notes. They're ready to go. And they're like, oh God, I can't wait to get back. And then life slaps them in the face and they go right back into their own routine. Yeah. It's amazing, Tommy. Well, thanks brother for, uh, Blessing us with your time, man, and gold nuggets. We'll have uh, everything linked up in our show notes that uh, we can get uh, more people around what you're doing and uh, get them fired up to to build a successful business and also check out this sweet book, Elevate. So thank you so much for your time today, Tommy. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the episode today. If you want to get even more value from David, then book your free coaching call at homeservicebusinesscoach.com.